صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners, and thanks for tuning in to 3CR and Palestine Remembered. This is part two of Dr. Inasik Tat's work on the Palestinian economy. We'll start off with a question on Gaza. We've just heard about the state of the economy in the West Bank. Inasik, can you tell us, is it the same in Gaza? Um, largely, yes. Um, the situation in Gaza is very interesting because the Palestinian Authority still pays salaries to some former employees of the PA in Gaza. Also, the Palestinian Authority still transfers uh, social payments to many families in Gaza. In addition, um, although this information is underreported and many try to deny it, but in reality, the PA still transfers some of its expenditure to the Gaza Strip, and not all of its expenditure is actually spent in the West Bank. In addition to this, the PA has paid for uh, some fuel uh, that Israel supplies to Gaza, as well as other other products uh, that may be exported to Gaza through Israel. But on the other side, of course, the PA collects clearance revenue from traders in Gaza who import products through Israel. So it's not all from the goodwill of the Palestinian Authority. It's also... It's the Palestinian Authority is also collecting taxes from the Gaza Strip, even though it is not operating there through Israel. But you also have a second tier economy that is built through the governance uh, institutions that Hamas has managed to build uh, in the Strip. I visited Gaza in 2012 while I was working with the United Nations. And one of the things that was just absolutely, I had no idea that an economy could be run in this fashion was the tunnel economy between the Gaza Strip and Egypt. Uh, now, of course, this tunnel economy has mostly collapsed since 2014, since the Egyptian um, authorities and the Egyptian army basically flooded, flooded the vast majority of these tunnels. But what was happening basically between 2007 and 2013, 2014, was a thriving economic model that was based on imports as well as the movement of people between the Gaza Strip and Egypt. And this model generated large amounts of income for the governance institutions, basically controlled by Hamas, which allowed it to extract fees for any business or any individual who was planning to build a tunnel between Gaza and Egypt. One and two, fees for people crossing between both areas. And three, taxes on everything that crossed between Gaza and Egypt. Uh, so Hamas managed to extract this from the tunnel economy. On top of this, and more recently, the authorities in Gaza continue to collect taxes on any imports that come through the Israeli or Egyptian side. Now, these, particularly the imports that come from the Israeli side, most of the traders would have already paid taxes through the clearance uh, revenue mechanism. But then once their products enter Gaza, they would pay also other taxes to the authorities in Gaza, of course, exacerbating the overall economic situation, uh, leading to higher inflation rates and increase and major increase in, in prices of products that are being sold in the Gaza Strip. So circling back to your question, in Gaza, 
we have similar conditions to what we have in the West Bank. Add to these conditions a completely new tier of economic governance that dictates the life, uh, the economic life in Gaza in a way that is very different to what we have in the West Bank. Coming back to like a simple term, in the first instance, we've got the Israelis profiting and subcontracting from this uh, system that they've created. In a normal space, a normal country, I've got control of my borders, I've got control of my natural resources, be they water, land, etc. I produce a product, it might be an agricultural product, it might be some sort of a product I build in a factory and employ people, I can then export it, get an income, sell it to a domestic market, get an income, reinvest those funds into to my enterprise, grow that business, create employment, etc. That's theoretically a normal space for an economy. That doesn't exist in Palestine, whether it's in East Jerusalem, the West Bank, or in Gaza. Yes, indeed. I even go as far as claiming that even if the Palestinian political leadership reaches some sort of political agreement with the Israeli government to establish a government in the West Bank and East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip, I am firm in my belief that the economic assets that the Palestinians have in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem are not enough to build an independent and economically independent and thriving Palestinian state. It's a geographically an extremely small area, is an area that, yes, it contains some natural resources like natural gas in in the Gaza Strip, but it's nowhere near enough to build a thriving economy. This tiny, in my opinion, an enclave of between Jordan and Israel and then having this this road system that connects the West Bank and Gaza, this is, um, um, in my opinion, is not enough and will not generate the employment that is necessary to meet the demand in the Palestinian, um, the demand of, of the increase in Palestinian population, and will never be able to truly build a national Palestinian economy. There is something that Palestinian thinkers and Palestinian economists and political commentators that they need to think about here, about what sort of state the Palestinians want to have in the future. And having one in the West Bank and Gaza, and even including East Jerusalem, is in nowhere going to be an economically independent political entity. Well, that's news. Uh, That'll be news for so many. The reality is disproportionately, whether it be women or children, they suffer most in these situations, the lower class uh, people, of course, but in particular, women and children. What's the employment rate like? Well, unemployment in in Palestinian territories is extremely high. Um, Obviously, unemployment in the Gaza Strip um, has reached 50% in recent years, according to the World Bank. Overall employment in the Palestinian areas in the West Bank and Gaza collectively exceeds 20%. And uh, this rate is really masking the bigger picture because you have about 12 to 15% of the entire Palestinian labor force working in Israeli markets. Essentially, this 12 to 15% is under the mercy of an Israeli political decision to cut them off from employment. And by the way, these 12 to 15% generate up to 30% of all income in the Palestinian economy due to the higher wages that they receive in the Israeli markets compared to the wages that are offered in the Palestinian economy. Um, In addition to this, you have an extremely high number of Palestinians that are discouraged from looking for employment, which results in them, of course, being dropped out from official unemployment calculations. Another dynamic here is the fact that you have a large number, relatively high number of Palestinians who attend territory education, and in most cases, unproductive 
tertiary education, mainly because of the lack of employment opportunities available. Uh, so instead of students choosing to go to vocational schools or choosing to establish their own businesses, uh, you have a large number of students that just enter university for the sake of obtaining um, an educational uh, a certificate from, an, uh, from a university or a college, only to be unemployed at the other end or after graduation. Now, there is also an, a major issue, which is the rate of labor force participation, as well as unemployment amongst women in Palestine. Labor force participation of women in Palestine is one of the lowest in the world, certainly one of the lowest in the Middle East as well. And due to the fact that the Palestinian economy is operates under strict measures and is under severe economic and financial distress, Palestinian women do not have similar opportunities to what, as an example, Jordanian or Egyptian women may have in terms of operating in the informal sector of the economy. Because the informal sector, Palestinian economy, is very limited, is overly populated by Palestinian men who do not have, who are discouraged from uh, looking for official employment or who do not have employment in the um, formal economy. And simply because of the way that the Palestinian economy or market is structured under the hegemony of the Israeli markets and economy, it makes it extremely difficult for women to part really participate in the informal economy, along with, of course, many other issues pertaining to culture as well as the patriarchal model or economic system that exists in Palestine, as well as patriarchal governance system that Palestinian uh, that is that exists in, in Palestine as well. The, since Netanyahu lost the election and we've got a new, I think a new wolf in sheep's clothing, Naftali Bennett, has there been a change in the economic ties? What's your take on the situation now? Well, there have been recent talks about improving the economic conditions of Palestinians, um, not only by by Israeli officials, but also by American officials and by regional um, officials such as Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, King Abdullah of Jordan, um, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi of Egypt and King Abdullah of Jordan, um, as well as the Palestinian Authority's leadership. Um, in, in, in reality, this is all that can be offered by the existing system of control in um, over Palestinians. Um, it is in the interests of the Palestinian Authority. It's in the interest of Israel. It's in the interest of regional players like Egypt and Jordan, as well as uh, wider regional players um, like some uh, countries in the Gulf, as well as the United States. Um, it's in their interest, all of them, to maintain um, the economic peace and, and, and relative um, economic activity in the Palestinian economy in order to uh, maintain the status quo and in order to keeping the Palestinian, uh, the issue between Palestine and Israel as a low intensity conflict that does not necessarily cause a lot of headache for uh, international policymakers. Um, so yes, there has been talks of improving the economic conditions, uh, but that's what they are. There are talks of improving the Palestinian, uh, the economic conditions, and they do not necessarily address any of the underlying problems that have brought us to where we are right now, or, and they do not address the underlying problems that must be addressed for Palestinians to gain their dignity and for Palestinians to be free. So fast-forwarding beyond those, uh, Niftali Bennett's idea within the Washington Post when he was in the United States with Biden a couple of weeks ago, no question that talk of the two-state solution wasn't on the agenda there. It's about improving the lives, and you're talking about that from the perspective of an economy creating a little bit of a better situation for Palestinians on the ground, keeping it a low-intensity conflict. We can 
move from that to the Abraham Accords, which has celebrated its one-year anniversary. I know you're in Canberra. I'm not sure if you saw that piece, but they're uh, opening up gardens in the, uh, the Emirates Embassy, Abraham Accord Gardens, where the yes. Israeli ambassador and the ambassador from the UAE, and I can't remember where the other ambassador, they were celebrating that these accords. Flights are now flying straight over Saudi Arabia. The airspace is available to the Israelis now. Thousands of Emiratis have landed in, in 48 Palestine and now visiting Aqsa. Uh, where, where do you see that going? Um, in my opinion, the question here should be directed at Palestinian thinkers, policymakers, politicians, academics, and so on. It's a question for us Palestinians to think about where our national movement is going from now on. It's time for us to reflect on what has happened over the past 25 to 30 years, to rethink our alliances, think about our strategies, think about tapping into the potential of the Palestinian diaspora that has matured over the past few decades and that has accumulated wealth and knowledge and education and policy power across influential countries across the world. It's something that we need to think about, restoring the Palestinian liberation organization to become a movement that is truly representative of Palestinians across the world, not only a very small segment of Palestinians, but truly representative of all Palestinians from all walks of life everywhere in the world. This is what we need to be thinking about as Palestinians. Other countries have made their decisions. Now, we can talk about how we feel about this as Palestinians. Uh, we can talk about how we feel about the sudden change in political behavior and position. We can talk about how this makes us feel. But in reality, us as Palestinians, other countries have, ma have, taken, have made their political decisions. Now it's time for us to be proactive and to think about where we are going politically going forward. Because since these accords were announced, and as a matter of fact, for the past 25 or so years, our political identity has been stagnant. Our political leadership has been stagnant. We need to have a new, a fresh way of thinking, a fresh way of thinking about the Palestinian economy, Palestinians' uh, diaspora, the way forward, our national identity, what we want to achieve, and how we are going to achieve these goals. Dr. Anas, you would have my vote as president, prime minister, treasurer, <laughs> etc. of Palestine for at least three years in your first term. We can only hope that that eventuates. What do, what do you think is a solution that we should be looking for tomorrow? I mean, I the show is firmly a one-state solution show where advocates for and uh, propagate the belief in the boycott and divestment and sanctions movement. Where, where do you see us in 20 years from now, Anas? Um, there are a number of ways that we can think of where, where Palestine will be in 20, 20 years from now. Now, the in my opinion, the pessimistic overview is a continuation of the status quo, defranchising Palestinian diaspora from the rest of Palestinians who live in the West Bank and Gaza, uh, further fragmentation of Palestinian communities in the West Bank, and complete control over Palestinians who live in the Gaza Strip. There is a possibility, a very grim possibility for this to continue. Um, the situation in Gaza has been around for um, nearly 15 years. Um, the situation in the West Bank has been around since 1967, also in Gaza, and also in all of Palestine since before 1948. So thinking of the next 20 years as a worst case scenario is a possibility. And that's something, again, that us as Palestinians need to think about very carefully in order to avoid this grim reality. Now, optimistically, we would see some sort of major reform in the Palestinian political uh, leadership. 
uh, we would see the rise of younger, more dynamic Palestinian leaders who are able to to, uh, articulate what Palestinians want uh, very clearly and without being ashamed and without feeling that us as Palestinians need to always um, provide compromises uh, before even we start negotiating with the other side. We need to have this dynamic leadership that truly represents Palestinian interests and this leadership to be fully supported by um, all elements of Palestinian society, including the diverse geographies that represent Palestinians um, today. If we can achieve some of this, then the, the future of the Palestinian political movement will be much brighter than the grim scenario that I mentioned earlier. If we cannot move forward towards this direction, then I truly do not think that the Israeli government or any American administration, or for the, uh, for the same sake, um, even Arab countries, can deliver to Palestinians anything over the next two decades. Very grim, grim reading there, uh, Dr. Anes. Again, Dr. Anas Iktat, who's an adjunct lecturer at ANU. Anas, the Near East Policy Forum, uh, I'm going to put a link to this as well as a couple of your articles in the podcast for our listeners to check on your work and follow you on Twitter, etc., and being, uh, to stay connected to you. Tell us about the Near East Policy Forum. I mean, it's a significant piece of work that you've managed to, uh, to found there. Uh, thank you, Nasser. Uh, the Near East Policy Forum is an independent um, academic forum that provides cutting-edge analysis on the Middle East and Central Asia um, at an academic level. All of the Near East Policy Forum's publications are double-blind peer-reviewed, um, and the primary objective of the Near East Policy Forum is to provide for Australian as well as Asia-Pacific policymakers, um, media, business, activists, as well as the general public, provide them with cutting-edge research and analysis about pressing issues from the Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asia. We operate in association with the Australian National University, and we are um, we operate very closely with the Center for Arab and Islamic Studies, uh, in particular at the ANU, uh, but uh, we um, are an independent body. Uh, we are completely formed of, of independent uh, researchers on voluntary basis and are not associated with any agency or organization um, in order to maintain the independence and the objectivity of the research that we provide in the Middle East, uh, North Africa, um, and Central Asia. Uh, we launched in earlier this year, um, actually in, in June, and we usually uh, upload about four or five policy analysis pieces to our website every single month, and in hopes of increasing the volume of our publications um, in the coming years, and also in hopes of steering the public policy discussion about these regions of the world, particularly the Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asia, as I mentioned earlier. It's a, it's a fabulous website, and the team you've assembled there is a real credit to you, uh, Anas. I mean, Thank you, Nasser. Some of the names, and, and you have a look at the specialties, and I've, I've had a quick scan in the past day or so, so I'd commend that website to you, ladies and gentlemen, please. It'll be in the podcast, but it's nepf.org.au. So Near East Policy Forum, nepf.org.au. Some great papers there. And, and as Dr. Anas was saying, it's, you know, the Middle East, Central Asia, North Africa, you know, everything from, I think that must be Kazakhstan, all the way across to Marciana. So an amazing, an amazing piece of work. And you said double peer reviewed. 
Yes, absolutely. All of our publications undergo a strict peer review policy um, where basically um, every single article is reviewed by two independent external reviewers and then um, also reviewed internally by our editorial team. We emphasize local voices. So we most of our publications have been written by experts from the countries that they address. Uh, so either a piece from Libya, as an example, is written by someone from Libya. A piece from Tajikistan is written about is written by someone who lives and works in Tajikistan. Um, and by doing so, uh, we are really trying to provide something that is new and bring the Asia-Pacific region closer to the Middle East, because we realized that there was a gap in the policy analysis that was that is available for consumption for policymakers, politicians, as well as the general public in Australia and the Asia-Pacific with regards to the Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asia. There is a lot of commentary. There is a lot of written material by, by analysts, uh, by observers of these regions, but there is little objective analytical policy work that is objective and that tries to uh, reflect the true situation on the ground and tries to provide an argument that policymakers and the general public can truly benefit from and better understand these regions. NAPF.org.au, Dr. Anas Iktat, who's adjunct lecturer at ANU College of Business and Economics, visiting research fellow, ANU Center for Arab and Islamic Studies, non-resident scholar, Middle East Institute, Washington, D.C., co-founder and chief editor Near East Policy Forum, a Palestinian underachiever extraordinaire. Dr. Anas, thank you so very much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Nasser. My pleasure. And thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much. Listeners, a quick update from Sheikh Jarrah. Apparently during the week, the Israeli Supreme Court has created some sort of compromise, endeavouring to sell the Palestinians on a level of pragmatism that can decrease the heat out of uh, Sheikh Jarrah. As we know, those Palestinians earlier on this year were being expelled from their homes. A second expulsion, most of the residents of Sheikh Jarrah are residents or former residents of Haifa, Akka, seaside suburbs of historic Palestine. These Palestinians were settled in Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem by the Jordanians and the United Nations. They've lived in these homes since 48 and 67. The Israeli Supreme Court has ruled somewhat in favor of an Israeli settler group has forged documents to create ownership deeds over the land. The Palestinians offered original Ottoman era documentation to prove that the land was Palestinian. Those Palestinians went to Istanbul, into Turkey to get the source documentation to prove their ownership over the land. The massacre that occurred in May was precipitated by what Palestinians saw as 1948 being relived in 4K high definition. The Palestinians there refused to leave. Something to note is the Israeli civil court has applied Israeli civil law for its Jewish citizens in occupied East Jerusalem, Palestinian territory. It's privileged those Jewish citizens of Israel with this law. The Palestinians that are living in East Jerusalem, in Sheikh Jarrah, are refugees of Haifa, Akka. Those Palestinians, because they're not Jewish, those Palestinians can't use the same Jewish law 
to reclaim their homes. Ipso facto apartheid. I'm proud to say the Palestinians there haven't been and won't accept this compromise initiative. They know what happened in 48 and 67. We're not going anywhere. The Zionist settler colonialist enterprise will have to, have to make amends for its crimes. The Palestinians are not going anywhere. They've continued to fill us with such pride, with their grace and courage. Next up is another fantastic song by Shadia Mansour. It's, it's called Kullun Andun Dababad. They all have tanks. The first verse I'll just translate for you is, they all have tanks and we have stones. They demolish our homes and kill our children. O Palestine the free, O Gaza the brave, Zionism shall be defeated. It's a fantastic song. Please stay tuned and listen to it. Shadi Mansour, Kulun Andun Dababat. Kulun Andun Dababat, Wahna Anna Hjar. بيهدموا ببيوتنا بقتلوا بالأطفال يا فلسطين الأحرار يا غزة الأبطال الصهيوني جايل النهار ترا 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 Shabbat 
شاطر تسلم للنصب يا هم عالفرد يا ابن العرة كلنا غزة هم بالعزة الناس زي كل الناس في احساس مش حماس ولا عباس لما شفت غزة انا شفت حالي شفت اطفال تتيدى بنا يضلوا مع الاهلي اطفالي تموت وانا ابكي افتش على ولادي شفت نسوين تنطف حضانة اختي استشهدت معلي استشهد لني شفت اخيرتي ولما شفت المقامة انا كونت بدي كونت بدي بس واقعي نصحني اتجه Visit the podcast, share it with your friends, and there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.